now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Modern Money Donuts, a show about ecological economics and modern monetary theory. Uh, my name is Gabrielle Bond. I'm an organiser and an activist, and I'm in um, with the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group here in Adelaide on Ghana land. And I'm also a director of Modern Money Lab. I'm here with Stephen. How are you going? I'm going well, thanks, Gabby. Yeah, hello, everybody. Um, as I always say on this show, I'm an adjunct associate professor at Torrens University, Australia, an economist with Modern Money Lab working alongside Gabby. Um, Gabby's going to introduce our guest today. Yes, we're very honoured today. Uh, our guest is Associate Professor um, Mark Diesendorf. Uh, he's from the University of New South Wales and he's an expert in renewable energy and ecological economics and uh, author of this excellent book. If people have, may have read this already. Sustainable this is... Energy Solutions. It's from a, a while ago now, this book, but it's a, it's a great book and it's still available and so informative and most of what I know about uh, the little that I know about sustainable uh, the prospects for moving rapidly to sustainable energy in Australia and elsewhere comes from having a while ago read that book. Yes and Mark was also a speaker at our uh, semi-famous sustainable prosperity conference mm -hmm. in 2020 and he's also been a guest on uh, another uh, uh, Event. series that we we ran in the height of COVID. Uh, we ran some Zoom talks and Mark, you were a guest for us then as well for Sustainable Prosperity. Um, so thank you again for being on Modern Money Donuts. And um, Stephen, uh, uh, Mark, you're um, writing a new book now. Uh, yes, yes. Um, its tentative title is Civilization 2.0, How to Get There. And um, we're about halfway through it. I'm, I'm writing it with Rod Taylor. And um, it tries to, uh, it pictures a smooth transition to a new civilization from the old collapsing one to a civilization that is ecologically sustainable and socially just. And, and we hope- That's exactly what we're about. <laughs> And yes, and so it says, look, although it's very late now, there are still solutions, but we've got to move very fast. Otherwise, we face the collapse of the existing civilization. Well, I feel we've almost uh, gone to the end of the story. We have, we jumped so, to the end. <laughs> <laughs> since you mentioned Rod Taylor, let's start off by uh, giving a plug to a book which Rod Taylor edited with Stephen Williams that came out at the beginning of this year called Sustainability and the New Economics, Synthesizing Ecological Economics and Modern Monetary Theory. But because uh, this is a book that both Mark and I had chapters in, Mark's chapter was called Energy Systems for Sustainable Prosperity. And since I read Mark's chapter, I've been itching to ask him whether it's even possible, and I know this is a question that there's not an easy answer to, but whether it's even possible to shift the global energy system, not just electricity, but the energy system generally, to electricity and to 100% renewable electricity in time to avoid the worst possible consequences of climate change? Well, first, I'll tackle the question of whether 100% renewable energy is possible. 
And the mm. short answer is it's technically feasible. We've actually got most of the technologies and it's affordable. And as most thinking people will already know, the scenario is basically to transition to 100% renewable electricity because wind and solar are now so cheap and to electrify essentially all transport and essentially all all heating that is currently done by combustion processes. And wind and solar now are so cheap that for new systems, they are much cheaper than any new fossil fueled electricity system. And in fact, they're already becoming cheaper in some parts of the world uh, compared with existing older coal-fired power stations. And in fact, they have displaced coal-fired power stations in South Australia, as you well know. That is, yeah, where, that where is really sitting. good news, isn't it? It's good news. So, so the, the scenario is to go to renewable electricity and to electrify everything that we can. Now, that would basically account for 82% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions, 82%. That includes transport emissions and heating emissions mm -hmm. and what we call fugitive emissions, escapes of greenhouse gases from yes. coal and oil fields and so on. And that, the fugitive emissions are quite large, aren't they? Yes, yes, Rather they're than larger than previously believed. Mm -hmm. And on a global scale, it's about three quarters of global emissions. So the energy sector is key, uh, although the other sectors like agriculture and forestry are also mm -hmm. important. Now, to do this, we have essentially all the technologies, but in one area for long distance air and sea transport, especially, we can't just simply put electric motors into large ships and planes. We actually have mm -hmm. to use renewable electricity to produce green hydrogen and either yeah. use that hydrogen as is or because hydrogen is pretty hard to handle, uh, combine it with nitrogen from the atmosphere and produce green ammonia, which is quite manageable. Now, green hydrogen and ammonia are still pretty expensive, but mm. there's a lot of R&D going on and their price will come down dramatically. And really for, trend, for energy uses, green hydrogen and ammonia are only responsible would only substitute for about 5% of global emissions. That's for long distance air and sea transport. So, okay, so the economics are fantastic. We have almost all the technologies cheap. So there's no doubt that we can make the transition. Mm. The problem is, as your question, Stephen, alluded to, is can we do it in time? to yes. avoid yes. dangerous climate change. And by coincidence, I actually have a paper coming out in the International Journal of Climate Policy. It's, it's due out later this week, so I hope it's That's on it. time, actually looking at this question. And the answer is very worrying. The answer mm -hmm. is that if global energy consumption continues to increase, there is no way we can yeah. we can convert the whole of the energy system to renewables together with energy efficiency by 2050 
if we go back to the pre-COVID rate of growth of global mm. energy consumption, renewable energy, even, even though renewable electricity is growing at a huge rate, it's starting from a small base. Yeah. And there's no way it could overtake a retreating target like growing energy consumption. So that, mm. is, that is the really big problem. And the problem is that if it doesn't overtake all energy consumption and replace all fossil fuels quickly, certainly before 2050, then we're facing a greatly increased probability of crossing climate tipping points. Yes. So the, the melting of the, the Arctic ice sheet, which, increase, which decreases the reflection of sunlight from the Earth, so it increases global heating, yeah. the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet, sheet, which is on land, and if that slides mm. into the ocean, we'll immediately mm. get several metres of sea level rise, even yeah. from quite a small release. Yeah. Um, the permafrost melting, which is occurring in Siberia and Alaska and northern Canada, which releases more greenhouse gases. So we have to cut these, these processes off and mm. we have to move as fast as we can to renewables. So the answer is we have to reduce energy consumption globally. Yes. And because energy is closely coupled with total consumption, even if yes. we have green technologies, they still need some uh, material and energy yes. inputs. Mm. And, you know, even that's, in that's the not, most, not widely enough understood, I think, Mark. I, I, I think uh, there are a lot of people that think that we can solve this just through energy efficiency and through um, shifting more from manufacturers to uh, services, but that on its own, I mean, that, that energy efficiency particularly is important, but on its own in a growing economy, um, that's not enough, is it? That's right. So even trying to transition to 100% renewables, we also have to reduce consumption. And, yes. and that is a really big challenge. Um, so... Um, this is what we've been grappling with over the past, well, quite a while, but very recently, pretty much every time we go on this show, we, we tackle this question from one angle or another. And um, I think when you're looking at the intersection of modern monetary theory and ecological economics, which is what your book is about and what our show is about and what what we work on pretty much every day, um, we do come up against these really big questions. And for people listening, um, it's great to know that there is um, solutions, um, but we have to start thinking about radically changing the way we operate as a country and as a world. Yes, and in fact, there is some hopeful news. Energy consumption in the European Union is declining, and it has been declining since the year 2000 quite steadily. Um, it's still at a very high level compared to low-income countries, but mm. it shows that it is possible, and it is declining in Europe because yeah. of a combination of the transition to renewable energy, so far mostly renewable electricity, but transport is starting to move to electric vehicles and energy efficiency which is much stricter than for example in australia so it's happening there 
and mm. the laggard countries. It's actually happening for the OECD as a whole. Mm. The richer and middle-income countries that form the OECD, but within the OECD, there are laggard countries like Australia yes. and the United States, and I think Canada, which are still increasing their energy consumption. Mm. Mm. And, and so we know it's possible and it isn't the end of the world. We can see that in Europe, although there are other threats right now in Europe. But, but those European economies are still growing. So what, what, yes. what you're talking about there, Mark, is, is uh, um, uh, a, a degree of, uh, I've forgotten the word now, absolute decoupling. Decoupling, yeah. Um, but the question is, I suppose, whether we could achieve sufficient absolute decoupling for a growing well, global economy to to um, exist alongside um, zero net emissions and a stable climate? Yeah, that's the question. And the worrying part, uh, I try to be optimistic by pointing at Europe, but the worrying yeah. part is the rapidly developing countries. So mm -hmm. if we look at countries like China, uh, India, uh, Mexico, Indonesia, uh, they're growing rapidly and their energy consumption is growing very rapidly. And mm. if we take all the rapidly developing, all just just those few that I mentioned together, um, they will soon overtake um, the rest of the world. In fact, they have. Yeah. So, yeah. so this raises questions of international cooperation. Um, which we, we are particularly bad at. Australia is an embarrassment. Well, we are, to a large extent, res responsible for the growth in consumption in general and energy consumption in the rapidly developing countries because they are manufacturing the products that we buy. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a role. If we have, we must cut our emissions, but we also must work together with developing countries and particularly rapidly developing countries to help them transform their economies and mm. to make sure that what we buy from them is at least green products, green goods and services yeah. rather yeah. than dirty ones. Yes. Um, can I quickly ask you about Australia's transition? Let's say we have a government that actually has the will to do something about this. How quickly could we transition and go from being an embarrassment to an actual leader? Well, um, South Australia is showing the way with the renewable electricity and it will probably be 100% renewable electricity before 2030. New South Wales and Victoria, initially laggards, are now moving. And so for sort of look around the country, I would say given political support, perhaps the electricity sector could be 100% renewable in this country by 2035. Now, All right. possibly, possibly also transport could be 100% renewable, at least road transport, mm -hmm. by 2035. Mm. Heating is a real problem because people have, well, as they've invested a huge amount very often in, in combustion heating systems. Mm, uh, gas-fired yeah. central heating but it isn't just domestic heating it's the investments already in in industrial heating and this 
So we have a situation of what we call stranded assets, yes. that, where these assets have been invested and people don't want to retire them prematurely. And so I cannot see our heating all converted to electrical heating by 2035. Maybe by 2040, we would have 100% renewable all energy, including mm -hmm. transport and heating in Australia. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it will require governments to be state and federal governments to have real policies. So, for example, to drive transport, we desperately need some emission uh, caps on yes. internal combustion engine vehicles as they have in Europe. Yes. And, and, no, and that gives a very strong incentive to... We're basically a dumping ground, aren't we? We're just a dumping ground at present for, you know, inefficient petrol and diesel driven vehicles. And, and similarly, we need real policies to give incentives to people to uh, retire their gas fired home heating and industrial heating systems mm -hmm. and go to electrical heating systems, which then can be made renewable. By so, heating, would you also include cooling in that? Because I feel like um, uh, well, a lot of energy goes into air conditioning. Uh, Oh, well, Our yes. buildings and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for domestic heating and cooling, we're talking about transitioning to the same system, reverse mm. cycle air conditioning. Cycle. If you're going yeah. to have air conditioning, it has to be reverse cycle, so it, it heats in winter and cools in summer. And and that's pretty straightforward now. The technologies mm. are there, but again, people may need some incentives to retire their existing um systems which are using fossil fuels yes the main the, there aren't any serious barriers to going to 100 percent renewable electricity nationally um the the main barriers are we need some new and upgraded transmission lines mm -hmm. and we need further development of what we call renewable energy zones which provide which have a a single transmission link to the main grid. We mm -hmm. need um, we need some grants in the early in the early years to get more in it, <clears throat> excuse me more electricity storage, batteries and pumped hydro onto the ground. And the most difficult thing is non-technical. We need to actually reform the national electricity market to be relevant to a system that's instead of being based in a fairly small number of large power stations feeding power one way mm. to industry and to our cities, we need to transform that system, the rules of that system, to one that has millions of power stations, including all the power stations on our solar power stations on our roofs, in yes. which there's two-way flows of electricity. And that requires substantial changes in the rules, which requires agreement between the states and the territories and the commonwealth and i think that is actually the most difficult part of the electricity transition absolutely could, could i just take a step back though because our listeners are not all in australia right and, uh, and my impression is that it is far far harder to do this on a global level than it is in yeah. this country and my the concern which uh, people have, uh, I've seen people raising, and I'm not well enough informed, really, to be able to, 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 to come to a judgment here, 
is that just as we say in MMT, the problem isn't financing things, it's about real resources. Um, if we're talking about uh, uh, solar energy across the planet as well as uh, as well as uh, um, uh, as well as wind and and hydro and the other ways of generating renewable energy and we're talking about uh, battery storage um, then people start talking about mining cobalt and lithium do the resources exist and if if you were if Mark Diesendorf was the mm -hmm. global dictator and was in a position to organize a transition globally to renewable energy um, without triggering other planetary boundaries. Um, is it even technically possible? Okay, that's a very good question. And I've heard a lot of objections to 100% renewable energy. Um, sorry, I have to turn on the power to my battery. I'm just being told it's gone. Yes. <laughs> well, that's it. That's <laughs> Okay, so you can see part of the problem. Uh, yeah, so there have been a lot of what I would call ridiculous objections to 100% renewable energy, claims that we don't have enough land and all that. But the yeah. one objection that is really has to be taken seriously is the one that you've mentioned, Stephen, the question of materials supply, specific materials for electricity generators, for batteries, and so on. And my understanding is that at present, if we do nothing, if we just build renewables, we'll run out very quickly. Within a few decades, we'll run out of some key materials. Fortunately, the problem is being at last belatedly recognized. So we are starting to see for the first time in this country recycling of solar panels but Excellent. we need to go beyond recycling to um designing redesigning not just solar panels but generators and batteries and other bits of technology redesigning them so they can be easily recycled and the parts reused and the key minerals can be extracted so they have to be designed for disassembly now the other optimistic thing is that at last there's starting to be serious research and development. Well, there has been for some time, but now it's becoming really serious on substitution of some of the key yeah. materials which are likely to be uh, used up very quickly. Now, we mm -hmm. don't have a problem with lithium for the next few decades. Australia's full of it. But with mm -hmm. many of the other materials, uh, they have to be substituted. Uh, particularly with some of the other elements of batteries and generators and so on. And mm. now we are starting to see subst uh, common substitutes coming in to replace uncommon materials. So I'm feeling that it is possible. Uh, yes. But this is, this is the only serious challenge, in my view, to 100% renewable electricity apart from the power of the fossil fuel industries, their political yes. power. And that is something that I hope we can discuss a little bit and how to actually reduce their power. I, I would love to spend some time talking about that. We may we may go over time a little bit if we start, okay. but I, 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 yeah, I agree. I think this is the most important question about, because as you, as you so, 
uh, clearly expressed, we have the resources, we know what to do, we are just up against this, well, what, what our colleague and friend Scott Ludlam refers to as the captured state, where both the major political parties are deeply enmeshed in the fossil fuel industry. And you could say that about the US too. You could definitely <laughs> say that in, in regards to Democrats and Republicans. Mm. Um, and with our, with our leaders being, and our, even our, our processes of decision-making being captured by those very powerful forces and industries, um, we've got to figure out ways to break that power. And, and absolutely. And we have those ways. And people are beginning to talk about them, mainly because they're concerned about corruption and the destruction of democracy. So we mm. need to have a federal integrity commission. Absolutely. Mm. We need to stop the revolving door where ministers and ministerial advisors have jobs waiting for them in the industries that they're supposed to be managing and where yeah. their chief political advisors are coming from those industries. The situation where our current prime minister um, has his um, senior advisors coming from the Minerals Council of Australia. Mm. Uh, mm. And, and, and this runs across this corporate capture of the state is, is now very powerful and it needs to be resisted. Uh, we need publicly funded elections. We yes. need to make sure that someone can't come in and spend $20 million distorting the democratic process and that's what's happening right now yeah so yeah we have to attack these driving forces and weaken them we have to reduce the power of corporations to mine anywhere they like against yes. the wishes of traditional custodians of the land and those who are actually property owners so there's a whole yeah. range of policies that we need to push for very strongly that that will make the transition to not only to 100% renewables, but to a a more sustainable society uh, possible and easier. And is this going to be part of your new book, Civilization 2.0? Oh yes, we have a chapter on state capture, corporate capture of the state, but we also need policies. If I come back to energy now very briefly, we also need policies that go outside the energy sector to reduce energy consumption and consumption in general. And the carbon price is obviously part of that. But more seriously, we do need global caps on resource uses of various types. And we need to recognize that the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases in the world are the rich. They're rich individuals and they are rich countries like Australia. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we need to fight for a wealth tax and an inheritance tax. You see, I'm talking heresy now, <laughs> but <laughs> this is the fact that the world's rich, depending on how you define that, and we're not talking about billionaires here, we're just talking about uh, people. Many countries have inheritance <laughs> it's really, it, it might be heresy in Australia. It's not, I mean, even the UK has an inheritance tax. Mm. So, but, so we need policies to reduce, as we discussed earlier, consumption in general, as well as energy consumption. 
We need a job guarantee for all who want paid work and can't get it. We need a shorter working week because mm. if we apply our policies correctly, there may be less work around. Yes. Apart yes. from the yes. essential work that the job guarantee people can do during periods of recession. And more broadly, we need increased government expenditure on a whole range of things. And again, this is a challenge to neoliberalism. So we need to spend more money on health, on education, on housing, um, public transport. And I mean, what we're really talking about here is we need a system of universal basic services to. Yes. And. And this you won't find any disagreement with us there, Mark. <laughs> well, and, and let's not forget that that people who are in poverty and are struggling to even think about, you know, next week, let alone 2035, 20, um, are not able to make the kind of choices that we're talking mm -hmm. about that everybody needs to start making. So we can't expect people to act um in their individual lives if the system is set up to make it hard for them individual actions are good but they, they, they won't they won't do enough without um governments in rich countries uh, uh well, not just rich countries but big economies as well like china but rich countries like the us and uh, the european union and, and here too um without the governments it's very difficult Yes, and I think that's the democratic choices as well. Mm. You know, people get disengaged from politics if they all they see is this kind of rotting and corruption and, um, you know, it just perpetuates this mm. kind of what's in it for me attitude and that's something that we really need to turn around. There may be a social tipping point, though. I know that, that, that we are, for people not in Australia, we're going through a federal election campaign here at the moment and neither side of politics, I mean, I prefer one side to the other, but neither side of politics really is engaging with these issues seriously. And um, I look forward to the future when at least one side does, where we <laughs> have a, 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 a choice that we could make where there was a government that would seriously attempt to, if it's a country like Australia, we should be having uh, probably 80% uh, uh, target for, targets for cuts in our emissions by 2030, not 40-something um, percent, which is what uh, the mm. Labour Party is offering, and 20-something percent, which mm. is nothing really, mm. once you take well, into account yes. the dodgy accounting That's right, the from, land the, from the other side of politics. Go ahead, Mark. sorry. I was just going to say, I totally agree. We, we have to change the system. And... Mm. Um, I mean, you look at individuals, if if low-income people are forced to live on the outskirts of the city where there is no public transport, for example, yeah. we can't yeah. tell them they can't use their cars. We That's have to right. change that system. We have to pro provide much better transport and housing. Um, we can't tell people living in rental accommodation that they have to make their building more energy efficient. We need tight regulations and standards so that landlords and landladies uh, have to make their accommodation energy efficient so that people mm. don't have to uh, waste so much energy heating uninsulated buildings and so on. Yes. So we have to change the system and it's in the interests of everyone but they're not being told 
this mm. by those in power and for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, do you do you have a view on uh, the the role of nonviolent direct action in the climate movement? Uh, yeah, I'm a strong supporter of nonviolent action. Um, the question is where you draw the line in terms of property damage, I guess, mm -hmm. and 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 that's a tricky one. But certainly nonviolent in terms of uh, violence against people, I, I'm totally against that. Um, I guess it's a pragmatic thing that mm. violence against certain property will will alienate the movement. Mm. So it's a question of choosing very carefully uh, the kind of nonviolent action that's required. Yes. And not all yeah. the decisions that we've seen in recent years by some groups have been well thought out, in my view. And so, so it's a tricky area, but there is a role for nonviolent direct action, and there is a role for property destruction of the right that doesn't affect millions of people. But mm. property dest destruction, oops, I'm, I'm going to be probably getting an ASIO file now. But yeah. I'm sure you've probably got one already, Mark. <laughs> I, I asked because um, recently I've been following on Twitter, there's a, a, been a global scientist rebellion and uh, in uh, London and Paris and also in the US, we've seen over a thousand scientists arrested for uh, blockading and gluing themselves onto, um, for example, banks or roads or um, other, you know, they've, they've basically sacrificed their, their liberty and autonomy to try and get a message across. And I think, People are taking notice. It's not being widely reported by news media. That's, that's true. Suffering. The Guardian yeah. in the UK, although we had um, the excellent Randeep Ramesh on as a guest, uh, the Guardian in the UK has not reported on it as yet, as far as I know. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of more at the, the extreme edge of the climate uh, move. Well, I'm, compared to some, I'm not, but compared to the average person, I'd definitely be... On, on the radical end? Well, everybody has a role to play. And, and I, I, I've, it's been great talking to Mark today on the show, particularly because he's made me uh, a little bit more optimistic than I was before in terms of talking about the technological possibilities and the, the fact that the resources that are needed to transition to renewables um, exist. It seems that we need different political priorities. It seems that we need to move away from maximum economic growth towards thinking about what um, what a thriving post-growth society uh, uh, would look like. And uh, I I imagine that um, this these are some of the themes that will be written into the new book that Mark is, is writing with Rod Taylor, Civilization 2.0, How to Get There. Um, but Mark, would you like to tell us a little bit more about the book? We started with the, with the, the new book. Let's maybe finish with the new book as, as well. Okay, well, um, the book starts with just one chapter on the situation that we're in now and the need mm -hmm. 
which motivates the need to transition to civilization 2.0. Then it has two, um, it introduces concepts of sustainability and sustainable development, and and that leads to the concept of civilization 2.0. Then we have two major case studies. The first one is energy, because Mm energy is really the driver of so much economic activity. And the second major chapter, which still has to be written, is on resources, so the, non, yes. the non-energy resources. And, and that includes a whole range of issues like food and agriculture, as well as minerals. And um, it includes people. People mm-hmm. are a resource, but they're also part of the problem. And yeah. Part of the solution, which I haven't mentioned yet, is that we have to stabilize population mm. in the world. And, mm. we, and this is and we have to do it non-coercively. So mm. population yes. is part of that chapter. Then we have the chapter on the state capture or the corporate capture of so many um, governments and economies. Mm. And um, so this introduces policies that we need to, to weaken the power of the corporation. Then we have the economics chapter, which I've just finished drafting, uh, which includes a, a short summary of some of the failings of conventional, that is neoclassical economics, and the need to transition to the interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary ecological economics. Mm. There is a section on modern monetary theory Mm -hmm. and then on the policies that we need to change the economic system. And Mm. then after that is mainly wrap up. So that's Mm -hmm. the structure as it's evolving. And it's about two thirds written so far. When do you think people can look out for it, Mark? Do you have an estimated? Launch date? It depends. We're still negotiating with publishers, so it depends on when they're prepared to do it. I mean, many publishers fill up their lists uh, early in the year, so we're probably looking at next year. But if we can get it out earlier, that would be fantastic. Yes. And we want to get it out at an affordable price uh, as well. So that's a challenge. But the book is written for non-experts. Yes. People who are interested and sufficiently interested to to want to go in some depth into the issues. But we try to to use the minimum of jargon. We try to Mm. take people from the basics to the current issues as we are faced with right now uh, without requiring uh, an in-depth scientific or engineering or economic knowledge. That's a challenge. That's so good, Mark. I'm, I'm really glad that you're working on this this excellent book. And I'm also feeling quite hopeful having listened to um, what you've said, said about the possibilities today. And I just want to thank you for, well, for being on our show, but also just for the amazing work that you do and bringing together all these disparate sort of uh, threads of what needs to happen and distilling them for us so clearly. Um, I think you're a huge asset to, um, uh, you know, creating a better future. And I wish you lived in Adelaide because <laughs> we'd be 
<laughs> we'd be running events with you as a superstar every day. <laughs> well, that's, that's very kind. Um, Thank you for having me on your program. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Mark. We very much appreciate it. And our guest next week is a friend of mine, Dr. Kate Wiley. She's a member of Doctors for the Environment, and she's going to be talking to us about climate change as a health issue and how we treat it. And that's also another thread that, that is um, what interwoven with all of the solutions that we talked about today. So I think that's a wrap up. Yep. Thank you, Mark. And Thank we'll talk all. to you again. Thanks. Thanks Bye, for being everybody. with us.